the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. Whether you're a veteran voice actor, just starting out, or don't even know how to set a level, we're here to help you avoid the pitfalls along your voiceover path to success. The VO Meter is brought to you by Voice Actor Websites, Vocal Booth To Go, Global Voice Acting Academy, JMC Demos, and Sennheiser. Meter is produced in part using Source Connect, made by source-elements.com. And now, your hosts, Paul Stefano and Sean Daly. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 60 of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. Hey, guys. We've got a great episode today, but in lieu of current events, we're going to talk about one giant current event for the podcast and kind of wrap the segment around that. So... Big announcement, guys. We have over 50,000 downloads of this podcast. Thanks to you. That's da, da, amazing. Da, da. Yay! Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe this has become such a large part of our lives, Paul. <laughs> I know. It really is kind of ridiculous. We, we always reference the, the Wayne's World quote where he says... We're not worthy. Well, that, but also when he says... I never expected a download, let alone, let alone <laughs> 50,000 of them. Let alone many downloads necessitating an entire segment of an episode. Exactly. <laughs> but to that end, we're going to take a moment to sort of practice what we preach and measure our own voiceover progress from when we started way back four years ago with episode one and talk about some of the hurdles we've overcome and milestones we've reached that you typically think you have to get to when you're first starting out in voiceover? So I'll start. Um, training. I mean, we've, we've talked about this in the past. Um, for me, uh, I started off, my first main coach was Terry Daniel. We worked to, with each other for like seven months before uh, we, we agreed that I was ready for some demos. And then I went a whole hog and got four of them made. <laughs> I had uh, commercial, narration, uh, telephony, and uh, audiobooks. And so I got those done. And meanwhile, I also worked with a bunch of other coaches. I did some of Anganguza's VO Peeps workshops with some of the guests that they had. And I also worked with uh, Crispin Freeman on, on anime and voice acting voiceover. And that was a lot of fun, too. What about you, Paul? What kind of training did you have at the start? Well, I guess my first training was really over 24 years ago, about to come up with 25 years ago, I'm horrified to admit, where I got my undergraduate degree from Towson University in mass communication, and that included courses in cool. radio, television, production, and uh, on-camera acting, and all sorts of media, and that was my first foray into it. But I didn't actually do any work until several years later with voiceover. And when I decided to start pursuing it more seriously, I signed up for the Edge Studio ABC program at the time, which was uh, a set curriculum of courses that you took to get you ready for making a demo. And it took me about six months to go through the program. Uh, I, I skipped a few things because I had that undergraduate degree in production, and I had been following lots of blogs and podcasts and uh, YouTube videos about how to create a studio. So I already had a studio set up and didn't need that, that part of the course. And I'd been in business for over 20 years in various different companies. So I skipped most of the marketing courses as well. And that turned out to be a pretty good choice because I haven't had any trouble marketing myself since I started. So it took me about six months to get that Edge Studio approved badge to put on my website and took a bunch of courses in every genre, had a demo made, and took off from there. Awesome. 
And of course, when we say like these are just the um, beginning steps that we've made, I still yeah. train all the time. Yeah, and and I highly recommend that. And all as you guys know, all the people we've talked to are successful because of some level of training they had, or once they got into the industry, the kind of the focus that they took. And most of the coaches、um, we've talked to, we've either been on seminars with, gone to conferences with, or we worked with personally, and that's really why they're on the show because they are people we wholeheartedly believe in. So moving on from the training, we're actually going to switch gears、uh, and save the gear part for last. But、um, probably because it's become the most ever-present part of our lives. But anyways, once we got the training, let's say we already got our equipment set up, then we started getting some work. Right. So I was really lucky in that once I started to, once I committed to the idea of being a professional voice talent, I started advertising myself as one and introducing myself as one, and.、Um, While I was teaching in Japan, I went to this sort of. This, it was actually an Oktoberfest event that was near my apartment, and I met a, a former retired、uh, jet teacher, Japanese exchange teacher named Drew Badger, who had his own English company. And I told him I was a voice talent, and he was like, "What do you know? I was looking to delegate the audio away for myself." And、um, And we started working together, and we worked together for almost seven years before his company moved on to. To pursue、uh, some mobile applications and developing those instead of the work we had been doing together, so that was great. And being able to work with someone with another business for that length of time and, and kind of build our businesses organically has been an, an incredible experience for me. That's great. So some of my first experiences were on pay-to-plays or online casting, and some of the freelance sites that are out there. So things like Upwork and Freelancer. dot com, people per hour, guru dot com. All these are freelance sites where you can post a profile and bid on jobs that are available from buyers looking for voice actors or voiceovers. So I did get some jobs there and did some some professional work and of varying rates and and usages. But all in all, I I did get some good experience doing that. And then I started to pursue. Work on my own, sort of like you did, Sean. I would reach out to people that I knew in my own network, reach out to people that I worked with in the past because I had had a lot of jobs in corporate America, and did some work for those clients as well. But I would say that where I really started to make some headway was going to in-person events, which I know is a a big problem right now in the, in the current pandemic. But I really feel like I hit my stride when I went to my first conference where you and I did the first live broadcast of this podcast at the Mid Atlantic Voiceover、mm-hmm. Conference. In 2016, and I really made some great connections there, and realized that was a great way to market myself to the industry. And from then on, it was Vio Atlanta vocation conferences that happened, and I was actually even invited to be a speaker at several conferences last year. Only one of which actually happened because it was in the fall, the original vocation. But I was scheduled to be a speaker at three more over the course of the year that all got canned because of the stupid pandemic. But I found that online,、uh, excuse me, I found that in-person marketing at events was a great way to advance my cause. Absolutely, and I feel like it's depending on your demeanor, because I mean, obviously, people who are a little bit more extroverted or social or social are、uh, thrive at these events more. But I feel like nothing kind of.、Um, What's the word that I'm looking for? It's the most efficient form of marketing because you just make a more lasting connection when you actually meet someone and shake their hand versus sending them an email, and it's just so much more memorable that way. And, and like you said, I mean, it's a real 
Um, it's really unfortunate that we're not able to go to these events right now, but when we do, and, and so many of the coordinators have been really good about creating online surrogates for the current situation. So if, if you're just getting into VO, I highly recommend going to one of these digital conferences, and as soon as they're available in person again, going to one, at least once, because it's really, there are a few things that you can do for your career that are going to have as tangible a result. Yeah, I've had so many direct referrals, direct hires, just from people I've met at those conferences. And so most people will look for a direct uh, return on investment from those from those conferences. Sometimes it's not immediate, but sometimes it is. I've been signed to an agency, which is what I want to talk about next, at a conference. I picked up clients from a conference and referrals that didn't manifest until years later at conferences. So it really can work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I've gotten like three agents because of that. Like one was uh, one was Jeffrey Umberger back when he was a solo agent uh, before he worked with uh, TCM Management ACM. And the, or ACM Management. Sorry, um, and then yeah, we just talked. He liked the work that I was doing through GVAA and asked me to submit to him and sent me some projects afterward. That was great. And then um, I believe that's how I met uh, Susie De, De Santiago for DeSanti and met her in person and then reached out to her afterwards and she signed me then and. And then thanks to you and Heather Masters from our accountability group, I had met Jimmy Cobble from TAG Talent at uh, one of at VO Atlanta one year during an agency read. And he's like, you were great, but we do referrals. And so I was like, ah, but I have two friends who are on your roster who can refer me. So, <laughs> so yeah, thanks to you two. I've been with TAG for the last couple of years. So, so like you said, it's so much easier, and, and keep in mind from the, the agents or the hirers' perspective, too, you just got all these faceless names coming to you via email asking for work. It's not as endearing as someone who just comes to you and, like, you share a drink and a joke and a conversation, and you're like, ah, oh, who is that one guy who was, like, so fun to work with? Oh, yeah, Sean. I should see if he wants a job. It really changes the experience. Yeah, it really does. So speaking of agents... I received my first agent from a referral. It was after I had done that demo with Edge. And Lisa Ristow, who is, ironically is now another one of my agents, referred me to Susie DeSantiago at DeSanti Talents. And that was my first agency. And that was right in the middle of 2016, shortly after I started. And I'll be eternally grateful to Lisa for that introduction. But at this point, and then I, I reached out to several agents over the years, some were assigned through cold submissions, some were referrals, uh, and some are people I've met in person. So I was doing a count. I think I have eight or nine at this point, depending on one who, oh, I, wow. have, who I haven't heard from in a couple of months. So I'm guessing they dumped me, which is fine. One actually did dump me, actually told me they were dumping me. So that happens too. And if you're if you're monitoring your business and you know where where your best relationships are, sometimes that's not a bad idea. So I did move on from that. I think there's, like I said, there's there's nine right now, and awesome. It's yeah. about twice as many as me. <laughs> That's great. It's not the quantity or the quality. I mean, it's not the quantity; it's the quality, right? But mm. but I have heard from some certain people, and especially Jim Michael Collins has said that he collects agents like playing cards. So the more you have, basically, <laughs> the better. Gotta catch them all. But I, um, I do want to say that my my long term goal was to get an agent in one, my, my native hometown, which is Philadelphia. I do have that. And to have an agent in New York and L.A. And I was able to get that just this year. And I have to thank publicly Karen Guilfrey because 
she referred me to this agency, and that's where I finally reached that lifetime goal of having an agent in both New York and L.A. That's awesome. I didn't know about uh, either of those stories, especially the one about Lisa. That's really cool. So right now I have, like, I think four agents right now. I did have five. I had a local agent in, in Washington for about a year and a half, um, and that was an on-camera one. They did have some voiceover auditions, but it was literally only a handful a year. And after like half a dozen auditions driving up into Seattle, which could take an hour or two by itself, and like it was like three or four hours of my day just doing the commute for a 10-minute audition and like doing stuff like dancing for a music video and things that I wasn't really interested <laughs> in or passionate about. And I would love to see a video so, of that, but, by the way. <laughs> oh, God, it was horrible. It was the most embarrassing audition I ever did. Uh, it was so stiff. But anyways, but but yeah, I mean, I still had a great relationship with this agent. She was great. Uh, she was very quick with her, um, with her communication, her correspondence. Anytime I had questions about submitting for things, because uh, I had, had no experience with on-camera stuff, she was very helpful and instructional in that way. And then, but after about a year and a half, I was like, you know, I'd really like to work for an agency that specializes in voiceover, and uh, I just feel like my time could be better spent. And she didn't; she wasn't offended at all, and she said I was very talented, and she'd have, uh, she had no doubt I'd be successful in whatever I pursued. So it was very affable. And like like Paul said, it's okay to kind of. Um, prune your relationships every now and then and to make sure that you're actually um, getting the most value out of those relationships. So there are professional ways to go about ending those business relationships, but don't be afraid of that, remember? Like, it's, it, it is a relationship, and we're not just reliant on agents, but they need us too. So uh, be confident in what you're contributing to in that relationship. And by the same token, have the rest of your business ready so if something like that does happen, it doesn't it doesn't destroy your entire business. I will say my parting was not that amicable. <laughs> I was kind of surprised. By oh it. no! It, it basically it was it's not you, it's me. So if if um, I wasn't dumped by this agent, I would have been doing the dumping probably within a few of with, within a few more months because it just wasn't working for either of us. So it could have been amicably. But uh, I'm sorry to say that it wasn't really done in this case by that agent. So I won't mention any names, mm. but just know that if something like that happens to you and the rest of your businesses, the rest of your business affairs are in order, you have other agents, you have other ways to generate jobs and income for yourself, it won't be a big deal. So one other exactly. aspirational exactly. thing I want to talk about was demos. So you mentioned your first couple of demos. I mentioned my first demo. Since then, I've done several others. And... One thing I, I noticed early on was that there were a few demo producers that were sort of aspirational people to work with in the industry. Uh, I'm just going to throw out a few names. There are other ones out there, but the ones that I remember hearing the most about were Uncle Roy Yokelson at Antland Productions and his killer demos, JMC and his demos, Chuck Duran and his demos at Rock, and Jordan Reynolds, who uh, now he calls them demos with chops. I'm not demos sure that, with chops. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a newer, a newer branding, branding uh, direction he's gone. I like it, but I don't think it was. Or actually, I think it was demos with chops before, and now he's Audio Ninja. Because, oh, you're right. Or something like yes. Demo Ninja. Mm. But anyway, th those were the ones that I were was really most interested in working with on an aspirational level. One, because they're expensive, but because they do, <laughs> because they do such great work, they're, they're worth every penny. I was about to say, penny. then you know their quality. Yeah. Well, they're yeah, worth exactly. every penny. No, I... And 
because because of that though it was a barrier to entry and i think it is for a lot of people so when i was finally able to do a demo with j michael collins at jmc demos i i couldn't be happier with the results it's landed me with i think my three latest agents and i can't complain at all it was really a great experience and i'm so happy to have done it do you have any stories like that well, let's see, aspiration. Well, just kind of talking about, like we said before, demos can be cost prohibitive and they can be kind of something that people put off for a long time. But we hope that you guys looking at our progress can kind of get an idea of what that can look like. Like, I mean, I I knew I was in this for the long haul, so I got as many relevant demos when I could, when I did. So like I said, I got those four to start with. And and the funny thing is, is I didn't actually get, even though I consider myself a character actor, I didn't really get animation or video game demos at that time because I was in Japan. And I knew it was going to be impossible to find the work that I was interested in while I was in a foreign market like that. So, um, and even if for, for those of you who are wondering, like, oh, but you could have been an anime. I was like, well, maybe if I lived in Tokyo, like, that's just the way that place lives. It's like they're a little bit behind as far as remote recording goes. So it's really difficult. Not that they lack the capacity, but it's just the logistics of it and getting the whole production team on uh, to be confident with that kind of setup. It's, it's going to take some time before they're more comfortable with that. But But anyways, so I just I put that off. And as our careers built and as we built relationships with some of these demo producers, we had more demos made. Like, for example, we worked with Tim Page to have uh, a niche podcast demo made. We luckily did get to work with uh, J. Michael Collins as a sponsor of the podcast, and he helped make us some great... Uh, did he have a commercial for you? Or commercial was for it, me, yeah. Uh, so he helped us make a great commercial demo for Paul and then me, a great e-learning one, because I know that's an area he specialized in. And this year, I'm actually going to make those demos that I talked about, the character ones with a Global Voice Acting Academy. So it's not that you have to do all this stuff all at once. And if you did, I mean, you'd have to be incredibly wealthy to try and pursue voiceover that way. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, the thing is, is it's an it's an evolutionary process, right? You you buy the best you can when you can, and when you get to a point that you're you've got enough return on investment to justify an upgrade, you keep doing that. Or another investment, you do it. Like looking back, I kind of I don't know, I go back and forth. Like there's some areas where I was like, "Yeah, you probably could have held on to the purse strings a little bit better, but in other like I never regret spending thing spending money on training and uh, investments like quality demos and stuff like that, because those do have a return. Yeah, that's true. So another aspect I want to talk about is genres. So we talked about it with demos, but let's talk about genres that we've worked in over the course of the, the last couple of years. And most people will say they they have either a desire to work in a certain genre or they want people to tell them where they fit. I'm happy to say that I think at this point I've worked in just about every genre, with the exception of maybe audio description and I guess on-air promos, but I've done e-learning, I've done medical, I've done political, I've done TV commercials, I've done radio commercials, video games, audiobooks, explainer videos, and yeah, uh, and podcasts, done podcast intros, as well as hosting a podcast, obviously. Hopefully you've, you've realized that by now. So, <laughs> and, and what I want to say about that is that I took the approach of trying everything and seeing where I fit, Still kind of working on it a little bit. You'll hear in an interview we had with Everett Oliver coming up that um, he thinks I should do promo. Not so sure about that. Well, maybe I'll investigate it. But I think you need to 
look at your return on investment, and if you are one of those people that tracks your business pretty closely and has either a spreadsheet or a CRM where you can track where your jobs are coming from, follow the money is what I always say. And for me right now, that's audiobooks is where I get most of my business. But looking back from where we started, it is pretty cool to see that I've worked in just about every genre there is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm not too far behind you. Uh, that's It's pretty funny because I've done, I've done some commercials. I've done a lot of narration, done audio guides, museum tours, a uh, couple of books, um, mainly video games. And that's for me because, like you said, you've really fallen into, like, audiobooks and podcast stuff as your, your niche genres. For me, it's this weird hodgepodge of e-learning and character work. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone else who has those two <laughs> main specialties, but um, that, that seems to be where I get the bulk of my work from. So, and it's been great. And, and, and you find, I think, we were just talking about this beforehand, but like, I, I've been meeting a lot of people at some of these conferences who get into voiceover because they have a good voice and someone else told them to pursue it because of that. When and when I ask them why are you pursuing VO? Like what do you what are your goals? They don't have an answer for me. And I'm mm. like then why are you pursuing this? <laughs> like if you don't know. I mean granted there's a lot of stuff that like that you don't know until you know uh, until you start researching the industry, but most people, when they get into this, they're like, oh, I really want to do commercials, or they fantasize about being on the radio, or being in a cartoon, or an audiobook. Like, they have some idea of what that career looks like, right? So, for me, I think it's, it's, it's a two-pronged approach. You want to pursue what you're most interested and passionate about, while also, like you said, paying attention to the ripples that come back. Like, if you're taking... If you've got a spreadsheet of your jobs and you see corporate narration, corporate narration, corporate narration, corporate narration, commercial narration, 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 you, the market's trying to tell you something, <laughs> like, right? Mm-hmm. So um, embrace that and, then, and figure out how to lean into it. But again, if you don't know what you're interested in, I think that that's still an important part too. But as the longer we're in this industry, we just find out that you kind of just have to be open to whatever work is available. And um, and kind of make your choices from there. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes your peers and coaches can help you with this too, especially if you've been doing it for a little while. So you know, people that I've been working with the last couple of years can tell me what they think I'm good at, and that helps a lot too. And coaches especially. A coach that does multiple mm-hmm. genres, like a lot of the ones that work at GVAA, can help you further define where they think you fit too. Uh, thanks for the shout out. But yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of people, again, like demos, coaching is one of the areas where people hesitate to invest in just because of the cost. And if you've never worked with a coach, you may or may not see the benefit. But more than anything, a coach is just objective feedback and industry knowledge, right? Which is the two things you need the most when you start out. Because if you're just like, if you're in love with the sound of your own voice and you're completely subjective, you have no idea if you're any good. <laughs> so it's important to have someone with the experience and the expertise to be like, well, all right, you're a little bit too much of a stage actor. Don't project like you're overexpressive. Tamp that down. Um, all those things that you may or may not be aware of, you need to develop that awareness. So again, don't be afraid of coaches and be don't be afraid to work with a multitude of coaches until you find the one that's right for you. So transitioning to something we, we talk a lot about, if you're a fan of the show, is equipment. 
Now, there's a lot of ways you can go about this if you're just starting out. And you know, probably from listening to our previous episodes, that we both sort of hodgepodge it together when we first started. I started with a blanket fort that I created with some moving blankets from Harbor Freight and Home Depot, draped around some PVC frames, and recorded some jobs right from there. I quickly realized that wasn't going to suffice, mostly because the, the noise I had inside the house, because I have three kids who at that time were uh, 11, uh, 6, and 2. Is that right? Something like that. Anyway, they were making a lot of noise, as well as the dog I have in the house. So I looked around all over for used booths because that's one of the big barriers to entry as well is uh, the price of a pre-made booth or the ability to create your own. So I looked for some, some used options because I have no carpentry skills whatsoever. And I found this drum booth on Craigslist for, I think, $600 at the time and cobbled that together because it was really meant to be one of those big booths that you see at a church service or at a concert where the drum the drummer is inside to keep the drums from bleeding into the microphones on the on stage and i made it smaller by using only the absorber pieces so i called it frankenbooth and it did a pretty good job at isolating some of those sounds but it was unwieldy and really hard to get into i couldn't stand in it because it was only like five and three quarters inches high but it did the job for quite a long time. And then finally, I was able to, to buy a whisper room. And for me, again, watching videos, listening to podcasts when I was trying to learn the business, for me, the aspirational goal was a whisper room because I thought that was the industry standard for prefab booths. And I was able to get mm-hmm. one. I'm still using it now. And for me, it was sort of the, the coup de grace of acoustics. And that's what I'm using now to do all my work. Congratulations. Much like having a demo or an agent, these are kind of milestones that we associate from an outside perspective. Like, oh man, that person must be really successful. They got a Studio Bricks booth or mm-hmm. like a, a studio they built from the ground up and stuff like that. So I have not actually gotten to that point yet, unfortunately, because I'm still living from home and I don't have a place on the first floor to put a booth. But I'm definitely going to reach out to your booth whispering abilities because you have this knack <laughs> for finding them for ridiculous prices in all corners of the globe. But uh, for me, one thing I'm actually really grateful about is that since I started when I was living abroad, all of my initial setups were very mobile. And that kind of gave me the mindset and the um, the creativeness to kind of make whatever or like to make a good booth in less than ideal situations. So for me, I actually started out with a lot of the kind of more consumer-based stuff. My, my very first setup was a snowball, of all things, which I didn't use for any professional projects. I only used it for some community theater recordings. And even then, it wasn't great. So I used that for a, for a very short time. And then I did a lot of research. And thanks to watching a video by uh, Juan Ka- or director... Juan Carlos Bagnell, that's right. Um, let's see. Er, I think I've heard a, this story direct... before. <laughs> I know. We've only talked about it at, at, at nauseum. But anyway, so uh, Juan Carlos Bagnell, great audio producer, director, um, loves gear, did a video on the Yeti Pro. And so, and at the time, he was like, this is the only USB mic that I really recommend for voiceover. So I was like, all right. Uh, so I got that. Um, I had just started watching VOBS and reading Harlan Hogan's book about recording voiceover at home and on the road, and where he talked about his Porta Booth product. And so I got the uh, the Porta Booth Plus when it first came out. 
So I got those right before I moved off to Japan, and it was a great starter setup. I was recording my little noisy Japanese apartment, and then eventually I set up uh, consults with both Dan Leonard and George Widom and learned how little I knew about audio recording. Because, <laughs> um, But yeah, so I used those for, for actually for a little while, maybe like a year and a half before... Um, before I decided to upgrade, like the Yeti was just getting noisy and I couldn't get it to work the way I wanted it to. So I replaced it with a Sennheiser MK4. So that was a, an, at the time it had just been released and I lucked out in that I found like a refurb or open box unit for a hundred dollars off. So I picked it up then and that was a great first big boy microphone. And then shortly after that, someone on the voiceover bulletin board was selling a 416 for a ridiculous price, like 500 bucks. Uh, so I jumped on it. And then uh, between those two mics, I was technically set, but I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't confident enough using the 416 yet. So I decided that I had to try out a shit ton of other mics. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so in the, in the interim, um, I tried the Rode NT1 the CAD E100S, the, um, the Audio-Technica AT4047. That was a loaner for my uncle, actually. I tried the, the Jay-Z J1 from um, a lesser-known company called Jay-Z Microphones. Uh, they make a really cool one called the Black Hole, and their vintage series V11 is really nice. You can listen to it on podcastage. So I tried those microphones. I got, thanks to you, Paul, I got to try the TLM-103, and that was hilarious because both you and the previous owner actually thought it was a 102 mm -hmm. when you traded it to me. <laughs> so I was happy to get the upgrade for that. But as you guys know, as as first off, that mic sounds wonderful. It really does sound like milk chocolate to your ears. But I was just so damn paranoid about the sensitivity and because I'm not in a fully isolated booth and and all that i was just too paranoid to use it and so and sat in its box for like a year and then i finally sold it off and then i got the mic that i really wanted the uh the gefell m930 which um had a lot of the same positive characteristics of the neumann but it had such a smaller form factor and it was much lighter and i wasn't worried about it falling down or anything like that so uh, i'm so th those are my, my primary mics right now, are the 416 and the Gefell M930, but I still have a few other mics. I got my Apogee Mic Plus. I've got, um, I got the Blue Bluebird I actually bought as a gift for my girlfriend because she's a fan of the original Star Trek, and it both reminded us of that. So um, with its br uh, baby blue color scheme. But yeah, so, uh, and that's just mics, guys. So I would not recommend that. I could have saved hundreds if I had just gone for one of the industry standards pretty early. Um, that was just mics, Paul. What about you? <laughs> well, I've had a lot of mics, too, as people have heard over the years. I don't want to go through all of them because, well, first of all, the entire list you just mentioned, except for the Jay-Z and the Gefell, I've used at least once. But I'll talk about the ones I've actually done work on for any long period of time. I started with the AT2020 which was decent at the time, but I, I knew it was entry-level, so I quickly moved on to the AT2035. Then I went through a litany of other mics that I don't even want to get into, but I did buy a 416 and liked it, but I kind of had buyer's remorse like the entire time I had it because I spent too much for it because they are expensive. So I, I went on this goose chase of trying to find a cheaper version of it and found some good alternatives like the Audio-Technica 80 sorry, Audio-Technica 40 
35. You might have seen my YouTube video comparing that to a 416. The MK. You know, I actually really liked your your 879, uh, the Audio Technica. Try that like one a, too. Even cheaper. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were really good on that one. I'm surprised you gave it up. Pretty much all the Rode clones, like the NT1, 2, 3, and 4. And the MKH415, which is an older version by Sennheiser that sounds a lot like the MKH416, but is a little smoother in my opinion. So I bought mm-hmm. one of those, didn't keep that. But I, had, I eventually ended up buying it again. Uh, I used an SM7B along the way. All, all the radio dynamics, RE20, RE27, SM7B, high LPR30, high LPR40, Rode, Portca- uh, Rode Procaster, Rode, what's the other one, the USB one, the Podcaster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what I finally settled on right now is the Rode Procaster, which I'm talking on right now. And I still use another, a different MKH415 because I bought it again. <laughs> Just because I found it at a ridiculous price, 150 bucks, I had to, had to do it, and that's what I use for commercials and video games. And I use this Procaster for all the podcasts and all the audiobooks that I do. And like you, I still have a, a litany of other mics laying around, sort of like the mic graveyard. I have a Blue Yeti X, a Blue Yeti Nano, a Blue Raspberry, an SM58, Audio Technica 8, uh, Audio Technica 875R, and. One that Sean gave me, the Rode Reporter, which is a field mic that I do use for some live announcing stuff when I'm able to do that again. I think the last thing I used it for was the Cub Scout Pinewood Derby back in February before the pandemic hit. <laughs> so that's my current stable of mics. Nice. We actually featured that in our 2019 um, mic shootout. And just kind of as a rent, like, I literally only included it because I had it, you know, and it was just, it, like, it really didn't belong in a VO shootout. It's a handheld dynamic mic. Mm-hmm. But it sounds for 120 bucks. It sounds amazing. It's really clear and quiet for a dynamic. And um, I remember, I think you said that was your favorite one of the bunch. Yeah, I, I really like it for live events. I've used it for several things now, like community uh, barbecues where I uh, MC, and then the Cubs Gun event, like I mentioned. I like it because it has this really long handle, so it makes me feel like Bob Barker from the old Prices Right. It's like a pencil. <laughs> yeah. So it's cool. No, me. it definitely. It's a good prop. It's a great prop, and yeah. it's like you could probably. Um, if you connected it to something small like the mixer face or the Micport Pro, it would be a really compact like field recording setup, I think. So that's mics. And one thing I've always loved about you, Paul, is that like me, I'm afraid to buy things. You're not even afraid to buy them twice or three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, you act first and then return later. But anyways, so moving on to other gear, I did want to touch on, because, I mean, you've had an interesting experience getting your acoustic space and set up and all that. Luckily, I've never had the noise issues that you have Move once I moved back to the States. Mm-hmm. When I was in Japan, oh, God, I lived in the worst apartment for, for recording voiceover because it was in an apartment, so with paper-thin walls, and you can hear my neighbors all the time. So let me say that Nagasaki is one of the only cities in Japan to have its own streetcar system, and my apartment was across not one, but two of the stops. So, so whenever a train came... And, and, like, one of the stops is, like, 100 yards from the other one. So it's always, like, whenever a streetcar came, it would be a good 20 minutes for him to go for, like, the ding, ding, ding. And then it would go to the next stop. And then it would have to do that four times before it finally was gone. And then there was an ambulance and a hospital and a fire station and a police station all on that road. I don't... 
Like, basically, the only way I was able to get recording done was between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. It was ridiculous. But anyways, so I tried a lot of the mobile acoustic solutions. I tried the Portabooth, uh, the Portabooth Plus. I tried the Eyeball when that came out. And I will say, if that's all you can afford, the Eyeball is a good supplement. But honestly, there are better ways to invest your your money in your studio space. Uh, I've gotten the best results from the Vocal Booth to go hanging acoustic booth, which I modified. I added uh, a like, PVC frame to it. I added additional blankets on the inside. And it's what you're hearing right now. And as Paul is wont to tell me and want to remind me, apparently my best studio setup was out of my mom's closet. So <laughs> you never know. <laughs> this sounds good now, after, the, after you beefed it up. Thank God. Jesus. <laughs> no, I admit, but my, like that closet is great because it's a very large walk-in closet and I'm literally surrounded on all sides by, by clothes. But but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with this setup after endlessly fiddling with it. And any other gear that you want to talk about, Paul, or any other funny gear stories? No, I would just say when it comes to interfaces... My philosophy now is less is more. I finally subscribe to the Absolutely. to the Dan Leonard school of thought where and George Whittem where if it sounds good, it's good. So I did buy an Apollo and I used it for a little while because I liked the expander in it. And then I tried outboard gear like a DBX two eighty six and it was all just pointless. It's so much easier to just do what I do now. I use an Yamaha EGO six and even then I only have the two inputs because of this podcast, because I can record internally into it. But if I was doing it all over again and I wasn't doing a podcast, I would just buy the Yamaha AGO3 and be done with it. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's so easy to fall in love with what other people are using and stuff like that. And, like, for example, for me, when I first started, I just bought something cheap and simple. I got, like, a Focusrite iTrack Solo. And that thing sounds great. It, I mean, it's not exciting or anything, but... Um, Ultimately, I, I gave it to a friend because of the build quality, like not because it sounded bad, but I was just, I didn't know how the longevity of the unit. So then I moved on to the Steinberg UR12, which I actually preferred. I thought it sounded a little bit more musical than that. And then I had been reading way too many articles and watching too much VOBS and got really in love with the idea of getting an Audion ID22. So at the time, just to give you a sense of price, I'm jumping from a $90 interface to an $800 interface. <laughs> and I looked on eBay. I got a really good deal on it, a few hundred dollars off. But then there was all these shipping issues and like it got shipped to my home in the States and then to Japan. And so it was about as much as it would have cost anyways. It was ridiculous. And then it got destroyed in, um, it got wet during a storm. And so that was a huge investment down the bucket. And then I found out that the Audion ID14 had just come out. So um, I had been working on a number of other projects. So I needed that consistency in sound. So I just got that. And then honestly, I wish I had just waited because there were so many features in the ID22 I just did not use. And I could have saved $500 if I had just waited. But no, I wanted to be the next Christian Lance. But, <laughs> um, but, all of this is to say, guys, you can get going, like like Paul and I have said, even even though we still love gear, we are far more practical in our applications. Like some of my earlier interfaces were $500 to $1,000. Now, if I ever need to upgrade, I'm probably not going to go beyond the $300 range because they sound great. They sound great and they have the features that the more expensive models do unless you're getting into the whole arena of digital signal processing and you need that 
that those pre-processing or instant processing features for your workflow. So if you don't want to spend thousands of dollars on gear, you don't have to. And I don't recommend it unless you love it and have the funds for it. And as we heard at Evocation, most of the producers there, including Sam Euphret from Lotus, said they want everything raw. They don't even like, in most cases, you to edit it. So there's really no point in having wow. all that outboard gear and processing unless you're like Joe Cipriano and you're working from your studio and putting things directly onto NBC and Fox. You really don't need that stuff. Absolutely. If your stuff is going direct to broadcast and you're already an upper echelon talent and you know the tools that you need, these aren't the things that you need starting out. It like it's. I like to say pay attention to the market and pay attention to what your clients are asking you for. If you can't provide that, then buy the tools that allow you to do those things. Not before, like I did. <laughs> so we hope that gives you an idea of how to measure your voiceover progress. See what I did there? Based on Sean and my journey over the last couple of years, things have changed a little bit, but I think most of the, the rules still apply that if it sounds good, it's good, like Dan and George say. You don't have to break the bank. And the most important things are your recording space and your training and coaching. If you have those things in place, you'll probably be able to make some headway in this business. And if you don't have those things in place, you can always listen back to past episodes of the VO Meter for resources. And I have made a free resource document that you can just reach out to if you're interested in. It's called VoiceOver Career Questions and Considerations. And it helps you with all the things we just talked about. It's got a list of coaches. It's got a list of free and inexpensive resources. All of the popular gear that I see used by successful talent. So it, it really is a one-stop shop for people, for experienced and aspiring talent alike. So with that, we're going to transition to the interview portion of this episode, which features Ken Foster and Tara Langella of the VO Repertory, talking about a genre that's up-and-coming, audio dramas, and how their company is furthering that genre in the VO world. Right after a word from our sponsors. As a voice talent, you have to have a website. But what a hassle getting someone to do it for you. And when they finally do, they break or don't look right on mobile devices. They're not built for marketing and SEO. They're expensive. You have limited or no control. And it takes forever to get one built and go live. So what's the best way to get you online in no time? Go to voiceactorwebsites.com. Like our name implies, voiceactorwebsites.com just does websites for voice actors. We believe in creating fast, mobile-friendly, responsive, highly functional designs that are easy to read and easy to use. You have full control. No need to hire someone every time you want to make a change. And our upfront pricing means you know exactly what your costs are ahead of time. You can get your voiceover website going for as little as $700. So if you want your voice actor website without the hassle of complexity and dealing with too many options, go to voiceactorwebsites.com, where your VO website shouldn't be a pain in the you-know-what. How many times has this happened to you? You're listening to the radio when this commercial comes on, not unlike this one, and this guy starts talking, not unlike myself. Or maybe it's a woman that starts talking, not unlike myself, and you think to yourself, geez, I could do that. Well, mister, well, missy, you just got one step closer to realizing your dream as a voiceover artist, because now there's Global Voice Acting Academy. All the tools and straight-from-the-hip, honest information you need to get on a fast track to doing this commercial yourself. 
Well, not this one exactly. Classes, private coaching, webinars, home studio setup, marketing and branding help, members-only benefits like workouts, rate and negotiation advice, practice scripts, and more. All without the kind of hype you're listening to right now. Go ahead, take our jobs from us. We dare you. Speak for yourself, buddy. I like what I do. And you will, too, when you're learning your craft at Global Voice Acting Academy. Find us at globalvoiceacademy.com. Because you like to have fun. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the interview portion of this episode of the VO Meter. We're joined today by two great voice actors, Tara Langella and Ken Foster. And they're here to talk about the company they're involved with called VO Rep, the voiceover repertory company, which produces high-quality audio entertainment with a modern twist. They create pop audio drama from original as well as classic material and add their own irreverent spin. So thanks for being here, guys. Tell us a little bit about yourselves, and, uh, and then we'll talk more about the company. So, Ken, why don't you start? Tell us a bit about your background in, in voice acting. Certainly. Uh, well, I uh, was in uh, radio when I was a young lad, uh, post-high school, and um, always lit that fire underneath me that was started, you know, when listening to cartoons and things when you were younger, and always associated with the voices and all that. And it was always something I wanted to be a part of. So as I got to my autumn years, I decided to pursue that dream. And about uh, six years in, I am a full-time professional voice actor in my home studio in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And Did you call I, it Lehigh Valley? With the Lehigh Valley. We can call it that. I'm conveniently located between New York City and Philadelphia, which in the age of COVID doesn't matter at all. <laughs> but the home studio does. So I have that. Um, I've always been entertained by audio content uh, more than most folks. Uh, rather than having something to do with your eyes, I like to kind of, you know, listen to old radio serials and things like that when I was a kid. So VO Rep is kind of like the perfect creative breeding ground for that kind of uh, a fire. And for our listeners, you might recognize Ken's voice because he's helped us out several times on the podcast as a correspondent for several conferences. So it's the first time we've actually had him as a featured guest. So welcome back, Ken. Thank you very much. Sorry, I was sipping coffee at that time. My bad. <laughs> and Tara, how about yourself? Uh, well, first of all, thank you guys. Thanks, Paul and Sean, for, for having us on today. I am a theater girl through and through. So uh, I grew up in the theater doing a lot of stage work and surrounded by um, actors and the process and repertory companies, which is part of VO Rep. But I really became like Ken. I was so fascinated by as we all are. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, you guys, you know, are creative. We're, we're voice actors. The process. Um, I'm fascinated with the creative process and just bringing a bunch of collaborative people together and creating something out of, you know, out of out of nothing. So it really started with just doing a lot of stage work. Uh, but I was fascinated with um, with what you could do with the voice, how the voice transforms the actor. And it really kind of took off from there. And that's how I started to get into uh, voiceover work. Um, and I discovered that I really loved as much as, hey, listen, I love being on a stage. I love there's something about live theater that just is so intoxicating and so incredible. But I really found that the, take all of that away, take all of that away from you. And what can you really how do you create a character? How do you develop that character? How do you really draw people in with just your voice? And it became an obsession of mine. So the combination of the obsession with the voice and what you can do with it and how you can really, um, you know, create an atmosphere and create a character and create authenticity through your voice with the idea of collaborative process from the theater is how VO Repertory was born. 
and also that process of bringing together creatives of all types, you know, uh, writers and directors and voice actors and, um, you know, sound designers to come together to create something that's really, you know, irreverent and uh, new. That's that's how VO Rep was born. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. And just for our audience who's not familiar with the idea of what a repertory company is, maybe you can even go into detail about that. Oh, absolutely. So basically, a rep company in the theater is is a group of performers, creatives, actors, directors that come together, uh, different collaboratives, and they're really part of the entire creation, right? Because normally you're going to have in, in the theater, you're going to have your director, you're going to have your producer, you're going to have your choreographer, and so on and so forth. And everyone has their particular jobs. Um, the voiceover, the rep company, the idea is that you're going to have this company of actors, uh, perf- creatives, that are going to have a season of, you know, you're going to have a three-show season, four-show season, which for VO Rep will have a four-show season. And all of those creatives work together, and they also develop the story. Um, we do have a writer, or fabulous Steve Wines, who has created a, let me tell you, you guys, <laughs> at Ken, right? I mean, Bravo the Steve, Los- yeah. it is really a gem. It is so much fun, but we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But everyone is involved in the process from the beginning to curate this piece. But also, the fun part is that everybody plays a lot of different characters. So you could have a, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of like in the past, I've done a lot of Shakespeare. So you have like Shakespeare rep and you would do like, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream and, you know, Othello. And it's the same actors coming back that just did that comedy that's coming back to do Othello and doing that tragedy and, you know, playing all of the different roles. And that's what makes it really fun. You know, you'll be listening to a VO rep production going, wait a minute, you know, who's that? Or, you know, Ken's playing, you know, several characters in Wasp Woman um, brilliantly. <laughs> I may, I may add. Oh, as uh, are you, I might add. As well, well, thank you, Ken. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so it's really, it's really a lot of fun, and it's also, you know, it gets to stretch us a little bit, which, which is, it's, it's nice to be able to work with the same. Um, the same actors you kind of get to and and listen this is our premiere production and we're even at this point have become to know each other so well and it's great because you have that opportunity to push each other and stretch each other with certain roles that you may not normally have had the opportunity to experience yet so that's another really exciting part of it yeah a hundred percent and I right. gotta say the cast of characters we put together to to make up the the members of this repertory are just an amazing, you know, array of talents, not just voiceover and voiceover adjacent, but, you know, we've got a writer um, mm-hmm. with, with a great catalog of material he's done up to this point. And there's a lot of collaboration that goes into the creation process, which I really feed off of because I, I think when you get a mixture of ideas like that, you really kind of bubble the best to the center and bring that up. And I, I think that's what we're going to get in our de- debut here. This, this is uh, a piece that I think we're all very proud of. So let's talk more about the the debut. Tara and Ken, you both mentioned it, but it's called The Wasp Woman. It's coming out on Halloween, which for those who celebrate or don't celebrate, is October 31st, 2020. Tell us more about about the production and maybe a little bit about the inspiration, which is the 1959 film by Roger Corman. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Ken and I both start laughing. You know, first of all, I personally... I'm obsessed with Roger Corman. I grew up on Roger Corman movies. I was a, um, I used to watch these with my dad. Like, I, I love these, these, uh, I love his work. I love it. So, um, Wasp Woman, we were, remember, I remember, Ken, we were talking about um, a, a few, um, we had, we had a few on the table, but this mm-hmm. was just hit all of us. Like, it was, it was, I remember we yeah. were having a, a meeting and it was like, oh, yeah, this. It rang all the bells. Um, 
you know, we had a powerful female lead. Um, it had the right amount of story baked into it that we could kind of move into a 2020 setting mm-hmm. and still maintain its pseudo 50s, 60s kind of style. Uh, I think that a lot of that played into it. And it was a perfect thing to get prepped for Halloween. And it was also a perfect thing to do our what we call our pop audio drama, which is basically taking a, a fresh take on uh, some retro material. And that's what Wasp Woman is. I mean, when you look at this this story of this cosmetics queen who will do whatever it takes to to be beautiful and relevant. And then you look at, you know, put it in a modern setting and look at what women are doing today and men as well. Um, they'll do anything to, 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 you know, keep that, keep their beauty, right? Botox. And so we have a lot of references to Botox and so on and so forth. It was a pretty progressive uh, move for a, for a B monster movie of the you know late 50s. Uh, this featured a female head of a corporation. And, you know, that kind of spoke loudly to begin with. And I gave mm-hmm. it a just to start from. And I think that with trimming a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of trimming a lot of fat out of the movie, but like scaling it backwards so we could get into a smaller, more bite-sized piece, we really have a solid boilerplate. And I think people will be very entertained by it. So we've got that coming up at the end of October. And what are the big plans do you have for VO Rep? We are planning on doing a um, four you know, big productions during the year. Uh, and then we're going to have smaller 10-minute, uh, 15-minute um, pieces in between that for mm-hmm. people to listen to and enjoy. And we're adapting some of the uh, the smaller pieces now to try to get ready so we don't lose things in the wake of Watch Woman. Yes, yes. Watch Woman's the big, uh, the big splash, the big hello. Hello. <laughs> so obviously yeah. you two are heavily involved playing several characters. What, who are some of the other actors that are involved and with not only Wasp Woman but future productions? We have the fabulous Susan Parker. She is amazing. We have, and this is the fun part too, our creative director, the brilliant uh, Daniel Azarian. Um, Dan is uh really a phenomenal director and he has uh, a big commercial producer of a lot of branded entertainment. He's also in it. Uh, Steve, our writer, is also mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the production. So that's the other thing that's that's truly exciting about it. So in this production, as I said, we'll have Susan Parker, who is uh, hysterical, and uh, Daniel Azarian and uh, Steve Wines. So it's great that everybody has a couple of, you know, everybody's wearing a few different hats in this. Yeah, I mean, and Daniel's basically responsible for all the graphics and all the uh, video promotional material up front. And it's just been Wonderful, just top notch. Oh, it's it's his vision is just brilliant. Really, really, really is what he brings to it, and he really is. I mean, you know, responsible when you when you look at that um, for the branding, especially for VO Rep. I mean, he really captures that kind of you know taking this B movie and really just making making it modern, just just updating it and making it fresh and modern with that with that fun little wry twist. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's talk about realizing this uh, artistic vision in practical terms, because, I mean, mm. there's so much adaptation that's going on. I mean, you guys have been inspired by, like, those radio dramas that have been happening since the 20s and 30s, and you're you're adapting a stage medium into an audio medium. And I'm just curious how this process has been for you, Tara, as someone who's grown up in the theater and um, in, in that style of repertory. And for you, Ken, how is this production differ from your usual voiceover production? 
This is the part that I love the most. It's not that different from, and I, I think that's that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this because you know, voiceover, as we all know, and um, well, first of all, let's just say it. I mean, there, there's so many different aspects of voiceover, but voice voiceover, voice acting is acting. Okay, so so that's that's first and foremost. It really is. But we're working a lot by ourselves. Right. I mean, um, a lot of the times we're, you know, whether we're doing commercial or whatever it is, you know, unless you're doing, you know, some animation where you can, you know, get to go in and work with people. For the most part, we're in our booths day to day, 24 seven, pretty much on our own. So to be able to have a, a medium like this where it, it really is, and especially in the light of, you know, this year and everything that's happened with COVID and so many theaters, which is just it's just so horrible. You know, you've got a lot of theaters that have been, you know, they're they're shut down right now. So this is kind of an avenue of taking that, taking the theater and taking voiceover and putting that together in that process. So it really isn't that different than kind of sitting down. Okay, we're not, you know, we're not together right now. We've been working via Zoom, but it's still no different than sitting in a theater, sitting in those chairs and having that first read through, going through that first read through, breaking down those characters, working with our our writer. And um, that's where it really gets exciting, too, because the difference is, as I said, if you're working on a play, you have your writer and you have your script. And that's pretty much what it is. This is the script, right? This is it. We have that ability to kind of sit and kind of improvise. We had a few rehearsals, right, Ken, in the beginning that were just, <laughs> let's just go and let's just improvise. And let's just see what happens. And and a lot of that, a lot of that made it in mm-hmm. to into the production. Absolutely, uh, Steve, Steve, our writer, Steve Lance, has been uh, just phenomenal at picking up on little pieces along the way. And he, oh, he's he, so good. He, he is so good. Fit a perspective that fits the narrative and the style of what we're doing, and and kind of write from that point of view. And it's worked out perfectly. And he's so witty. I mean, he's so, the dialogue is very, I don't know if you guys, you know, are fans of Ryan Murphy, um, you know, American Horror Story and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that he has that wonderful sensibility about him. And it's it's very like these, these witty barbs going back and forth. His writing is brilliant. It really is. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, uh, back to, uh, as you asked, I, I Tara and I met in uh, a workshop in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually a Pat Fraley workshop. Yes. And about a year later, she had, you know, we'd connected and she had popped up and said, I think I want to do this thing. And I was like, oh, I want everything to do with it. So <laughs> I was like, what, what, I mean, you need somebody to paint sets for, you know, sets that nobody's ever going to see because it's voiceover. I'm like, I'll do that too. It I don't helps care. the actors. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I was, I was all in. And then, and this was before uh, the pandemic really took hold so this is in like february and we were musing about what this would evolve into and how would this work and there was talk initially of physically getting together and doing this in a space yes Yes. Mm -hmm. this is a very portable medium and it made itself very useful as we moved into the everyone at home model and it's been perfect since then to kind of get our arms around that i mean to quote captain america i could do this all day i Mm -hmm. I absolutely (laughs) love this i've connected with some other audio drama projects and groups and have been able to kind of leverage some of that i would love to do this stuff all the time it's just uh this is focused entirely on that and Mm -hmm. like i said i'm just all in i'm still happy you know auditioning as we do each day uh most of my work's in commercial and corporate stuff so uh this is a nice escape from some of that and really kind of let the creative juices flow like tara was saying with our improv versions of these where we're kind of 
just throwing things at the wall to see what would stick. We all got to play with voices and accents and, you know, take on <laughs> characters that we weren't previously doing just to try it out. And that was just phenomenal. The exploration in that space is, is, is really, really uh, liberating. Well, let's talk about tech a little bit because it's probably not unlike producing a podcast at this point with all the different elements. How are you pulling it off? What technology are you using? Are you planning on getting back together now that you've had a taste of doing it remotely? Let's talk a little bit about the production itself. We ha- <laughs> well, we have the fabulous uh, Michael Kinsey, uh, who is our... Oh, from Learning um, Ally. What's that? From Learning Ally. Yeah, from Learning Ally. Yeah, we're actually Kinsey talking to him Ally. next week. My, he's oh my he, Michael is is fabulous and I, I've I've had the pleasure of working with Michael as we all have uh, a lot in a lot of different um, audiobook productions and he is our audio producer for the Wasp Woman so he has been so there's that the technical part of it so we've had a few things we've had the technical part of it but then we've also had the creation of the sound effects we've had the kind of design and that's something where everyone has sort of come together Ken and Dan specifically, have really been phenomenal about finding different sounds and creating sounds that, you know, we, we have a lot of very interesting, you know, things happening, a lot of attacks, a lot of interesting deaths. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, and we had to really create these unique sounds. So a lot of it was, uh, uh, you know, finding things. And, you know, I'll let Ken speak to that, too, because I know he, he found a lot of these, pheno- these, these fantastic and built some of them. So we do have a Foley, you know, of sounds being, you know, s- sounds that are being built. Um, and then Michael had to go in and take all of all of us uh, and um, really just he cre- he brilliantly created the idea that we are really all in the same studio, which, as you guys know, is is really, you know, it's an yeah. art form. It really is. Mm-hmm. It, it, the the, uh, the dry recording uh, so far with all of us, you couldn't tell that we weren't all sitting in the same space because we've done this over Zoom a number of times to iron out, you know, the production itself and. We thought about doing an ensemble record, and it was just not logistically um, going to work because not everyone was going to record from the place that we meet at. So uh, compiling all these and getting them together like Michael's done and making it sound like we are all in one space is just phenomenal. And so then, you're recording live at, at, with all of you reading the, the script live, or are you doing your own parts and then he's piecing it together? We, that The latter. Uh, we, we've recorded live uh, and taken the Zoom recording to listen to as far as fine-tuning performance and things, but with the ultimate line recording, we, we had to do them individually and you had to do them from the, the sense memory of the, how that scene went because I remember that's when that's when uh, Daniel says this and then that's when Steve says that and then I go, yeah, and, you know, they, you have to you know kind of put yourself back into that frame of mind. And as Tara said, you know, Michael put all that stuff together brilliantly. So it's it's really, really been impressive and then on the sound design end as far as uh, effects and music as a group we collaborated on kind of deciding uh some of the themes and music and and what needed to be in there but we did really have to go out and kind of search and and even build some of those um which was a matter of you know just doing some multi-track layering of different sources to make it sound like one of our scenes takes place in an office. So we wanted to have an office background going on through the whole thing that wasn't overpowering, but it had like mm-hmm. phones ringing and murmuring and, you know, a copier spitting out things. So just building pieces like that. That sounds like a lot, a lot of fun. fun. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, what, also, what also made it helpful, you guys, is that we had a lot of rehearsal. And that's that's where the theater end comes in, of it, you know, mm-hmm. into it. And that's another thing that's different with us. You know, let, hey, you have a commercial audition and you're, you know, we need this in an hour. You go, your agent needs it an hour and you're, you know, you're working it, you're doing your thing, you're getting it out there. You've got to perform quickly, right? Especially, you know, animation, video game, you can go in for the job and it's like, whoop, okay, you were going to, you read for this character? Now you're playing this one. Go. Okay. <laughs> so, and you're like, oh God, okay. Um, um, but here we had, again, going back to the theater, you you just, you have all of this time, you have time to kind of sit with that script and talk and discuss. So we had a lot of rehearsal so that when it came time for all of us to record individually, it's all there. It's all there. As Ken was saying, your sense memory pops in and you're like, oh yeah, I know how this is going to be. So that was really, that was something that was also really um, satisfying, really A- fun. Acting is reacting, right? Acting is reacting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We all we all play a part in the overall production too. So I think we all got open eyes through this process of not just the I want to play a funny guy or something, but you know the story, the building, the creative process, uh, the sound design and production part of it. And now we're all all kind of taking part in the in the promotion part of it. So we're all kind of getting a, a wide view of all the aspects of putting this out and, and making this happen. So it'll make us you know better, stronger faster, all those things for the next few. (laughs) Definitely. Wonderful. Well, this is a passion project in the truest sense of the word. I mean, it's really like the energy is palpable in in your enthusiasm. It's really fun to hear you guys talk about it. Is there anything else you want to mention before we let you go today? Well, I do want to let people know to um, it's October 31st. Visit if you visit our website, um, vorep.net, and you sign up for our newsletter, we have a gift for you. So we so um, ooh, it's a very special wasp woman gift. Uh, so um, I just want to put that out there. Go there, sign up. It'll have all the information about where you can listen to the um, to the wasp woman. Um, mm-hmm. So go on there and visit and sign up. Yeah, vorep.net will be the portal of all things vorep. So that'd be the 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 address to remember. Okay, fantastic. And are you looking yeah. for any other talent to help with the with future productions? We will be. We will be. We will definitely uh, be looking to. I mean, that that's the whole part of it, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's about community and the collaboration, and we want to in the future open up roles. So we'll have you know we'll have a rep company, but we'll definitely be looking to uh, have castings in the future to come on in for productions. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we we had talked even during this production about uh, opening up some audition roles uh, when we got the story boiled down it felt more like i think we can you know the five of us can take this along and and that way we'll be better polished to know what to offer and who to look for exactly productions very cool well if you need a youthful articulate sound let me know (laughs) (laughs) we will (laughs) ken tara thanks so much for coming on talking to us about vo rep it's a really exciting project and look forward to hearing more about it on halloween oh great thank you paul and sean so much absolutely a lot of fun our pleasure Hey, Sean, what's a vocal booth? Uh, it's an acoustically treated space to record voiceover, sing, or practice music. Okay, so then what's a vocal booth to go? An acoustically treated space to eat a cheeseburger and fries? No, of course not. Vocal Booth To Go's patented acoustic blankets, noise mitigation products, and portable booths are an effective alternative to expensive soundproofing. They're often used by vocal and voiceover professionals, engineers, and studios as an affordable soundproofing and absorption solution. Oh, I have it now. Actually, I've always had it. 
I've used Vocal Booth To Go's products for years, and I can't recommend them enough. Vocal Booth To Go. We make your environment quieter for less. Walgreens. Because it's flu season, you live in a place with doorknobs and handrails and, you know, people. You tried booking a vacation rental on one of those other websites? They don't always tell you everything. The stars take it to the red carpet. We are back live from the red carpet. California leads the way for change in America, and so does Kamala Harris. Rated M for Mature. Claire Redfield. And who exactly are you? So, yeah, what hashtag should I use to describe a grown man in a tuxedo wrestling a goat? Prior to 1933, many of them belonged to a variety of political parties that were now outlawed in Germany. This is the story of how Q got curly. Quinn was crazy about curls. Curly fries, curly straws, curly-haired dogs. Hey, Jay Michael here. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter podcast. It's one of my favorites. If you're looking for a great demo like the ones you just heard, check out jmcdemos.com for more information. And we're back. Man, that was a fun interview. <laughs> uh, I love working with Ken. He's a great guy. And, and Tara, like, there's no wonder that she's a voice talent. I mean, she's got a lovely, expressive voice. And we didn't mention it during the interview, but one of the cool seven degrees of VO that I noticed when I learned about her was that she is actually the niece of Frank Langella, the actor of stage and film. And you'll probably recognize him from the late 80s, I think it was 1989, Masters of the Universe movie as Skeletor. So uh, the one and only live action Skeletor. So you guys know I love that guy. And as campy as the movie was, it's an important part of the lore. But I didn't want to embarrass her with my nerdiness during the interview. I just thought that was cool. Yeah, and I really enjoyed their their description of Wasp Woman and all the, the cool things that are coming up with the repertory because it's something I hadn't really thought about. And I think it's a place where a lot of our colleagues are working now that audio dramas are sort of having their, their, re, their renaissance because people are listening to things exactly. more. And there, it's really something that's growing. It's really cool because, I mean, like you said, the, there's this, I mean, it kind of started with podcasts and audiobooks, but people are kind of clamoring for these full-on audiobook, or excuse me, audio productions where it's sort of like a radio play or an audio drama. I just finished listening to The Incredible Sandman audio production by Neil Gaiman and company. It's got a full cast with like James McAvoy and Taron Edgerton and all these other great uh, talent. But but you're right. There's There really is a renaissance, both as people listening to content just want to kind of delve into the audio medium, and actors like ourselves are trying to figure out other ways to create content remotely. And I, and I think it, it lends itself really well to that. And I'm really passionate about this stuff because I have always loved the old radio dramas. I listen to them with my dad. And when we go on commutes and stuff like that, even places in Seattle actually have local live audio drama performances. So there's definitely a demand for it. And I think this could be a lucrative area or even just a fun area for voice actors to create something. Yeah, absolutely. So congratulations to Ken and Tara and all the rest of the VO Repertory Company. Don't forget to tune in to listen to Wasp Woman on October 31st, that's Halloween, at VORep, that's R-E-P dot net. Well, that wraps up this episode of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. So coming up, we have our pre-conference series for the upcoming MAVO, that's Mid-Atlantic VO Mini Online Conference. Uh, Like most VO conferences, they're going to an online platform this year for the safety of all. 
It's going to be a great event. They've got some great guest speakers like Sarah Jane Sherman, Talking Animation, Everett Oliver as well. Eric Bauza is the guest speaker. Really excited about that. And then, in addition to that, we have another personally special episode. I got to interview uh, actor and voice actor Keston John. You might know him as the voice of Hordak from the recent She-Ra and the Princesses of Power series, but he's also done a number of video games as well, such as the uh, the Lego Marvel franchise and World of Warcraft. So, and he's just got he's got such a good head on his shoulders and he's so humble and down to earth. He was really fun to talk to and he really kind of galvanized a lot of the things that we talked about on the podcast, like the importance for training, professional level equipment, all that stuff. But that pretty much wraps up things for this episode of the VO Meter. Please tune in for those coming episodes and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the VO Meter. To follow along, visit us at www.vometer.com. We'd also love to hear your comments or suggestions for the show. Or if you have a questionable gear purchase, tell us all about it on our Facebook page or on Twitter at the VO Meter.